Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute. In SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. And I am not John Shaw, your regular host and director of the Institute. My name is Allie Quick. I'm the communications and marketing associate here, and I edit and produce the podcast. This week, I'm turning the tables on our aforementioned host and director, uh, John. Hello. Thank you for sitting down with me. Thank you, Allie. So this podcast was launched last September, but you started this interview series way earlier than that. And actually, the podcast includes conversations from three different series, Understanding Our New World, Meet the Mayor, and Illinois Authors. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you got started with virtual events and tell us about these three series? Yeah, well, I mean, I wish I could say this was part of a grand strategic plan that I had conceived of um, uh, several years ago, but it was like a lot of people uh, reacting to COVID. We had a very full spring agenda in 2020 that was uh, derailed by the arrival of COVID. We had to cancel in-person events and decided that we needed to stay alive and do productive things. Um, I have to say, initially, I was a little cool to the idea of a Zoom series. I'd been in some Zoom meetings that felt it a little bit like hostage sessions. And it just, uh, I was a little skeptical, but then I decided that we should take the plunge. And so we launched a series called Understanding Our New World. And the first guest was David Kennedy, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian from Stanford. He had been on campus a few years earlier. And I thought he would be particularly interesting to talk to because everyone was trying to figure out what COVID meant for our world and what, you know, and, he, and Kennedy wrote this amazing book about the United States going through the Depression and World War II. So someone who had written about the United States in the midst of turmoil. So I thought he'd be a wonderful person to talk to. He was terrific. Our first, our first conversation had some technical issues, which we rectified. So we kind of started out and it just... Uh, so we had uh, Mr. Kennedy was first. Our second guest was Jan Eliasson, who's a Swedish diplomat, really one of the best diplomats in the world. I'd written a book about him many years earlier, so I had maintained a friendship. He was terrific. Then we had a president of Knox College. Then we had the Washington correspondent of the New York Times, Carl Hulse. Uh, and then we had Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago. So those were our initial ones. And and I think it was important because we, um, you know, had some really strong guests early on, which allowed us to lure other guests going forward, kind of a, you know, flattery by association. And so that was how we started it. So that was understanding our new world. And maybe we can talk about that mostly. But, but we also have a Meet the Mayor series where we talk periodically with a mayor from an Illinois community. And then we have an Illinois author series where we talk with authors from the, from Illinois, and particularly those who have Illinois themes in their writing. Right. So Meet the Mayor seems like kind of a thing, especially during COVID, where a lot of this leadership was coming from the municipal level. A lot of the confusion was sort of assuaged by these mayors, right? So was that kind of part of the impetus for starting Meet the Mayor during COVID? It was that for sure that, you know, COVID was so disruptive and and the, lo- the local officials were the ones who were at ground zero. It's also been said, you know, particularly as, as our, our democracy struggles in Washington, to put it mildly, you hear people say that the one form of government that seems to have pretty wide support from the United States is state and local government, particularly local government. And, you know, this is where mayors have to make sure that, you know, the city services are working and the roads are good and the the, the 
playground is clean and that sort of thing. So I had long been interested in the notion of mayors as being kind of the primary public officials throughout the country. And, uh, you know, actually after our conversation with Emmanuel, whose book, he'd written a book, which focused a lot about the importance of mayors in American political life. So we decided to launch the series, you know, focusing on Illinois mayors. Illinois authors is more of our cultural offering, right? Understanding our new world seems very historical perspective. Some of these heavy policy issues meet the mayor is kind of more of these local policy issues. So Illinois authors seems like kind of a break sometimes, maybe a little more fun. A little bit more fun. I mean, and, uh, you know, we, some, and to some extent, we have authors who write about political issues, not exclusively. We had a Doug Wilson, who's one of the foremost Lincoln scholars, you know, talked about Lincoln in a kind of a broad way of his leadership and his writing, too. Um, we had uh, Ray Long, who wrote a book on Speaker Madigan that was po- Politico. Oh, we had a wonderful guest, Margot Jefferson, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic from the New York Times, who wrote an amazing memoir of growing up in Chicago in the 50s as part of an affluent black community called Negro Land. And she was our very, very literary and really interesting uh, uh, guest who uh, took the podcast in different directions. She was just, <laughs> she was a force of nature, and I, I just tried to ride the wave of that interview. Definitely. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you select these guests. It's such a wide variety of people. How do you decide? How do you approach people? You know, it's, I, again, I wish I could say there was this huge strategic way, but, you know, a lot of it is just, um, you know, I read a lot. Um, I read magazines a lot, particularly The Atlantic, The New Yorker, um, and they have foreign affairs, foreign policy, and I look out for interesting essays. And a lot of times these interesting essays are connected to a new book. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I look out there, um, I, I read book reviews, you know, as I say, I like books, so I, I review, uh, review uh, book review sections and see what's new. I go to the, our local Barnes & Noble bookstore here in Carbondale, and I think three or four of our guests have been the result of me just roaming the stacks and seeing an interesting book that looked like it might be worth, uh, you know, getting a copy of, reading, um, and, and then reaching out to their publicist. And I'll say one thing, I was a reporter for many years in D.C. and actually for 12 years had a monthly column where I was profiling people involved in politics and diplomacy. And the one thing I learned is people who were other, otherwise completely inaccessible became accessible when they had books. I remember I, for years I tried to get an interview with Henry Kissinger and to no avail. And then he came out with a book um, and I, you know, I actually went through his publicist and she was like, you know, great, we can arrange something. So I had this phone interview with, with Henry Kissinger. So, so, so that's another way. And the other thing I do is I, I like to look at um, the think tank world, both in Washington and Illinois and look at their events section, see what guests they're having. Uh, Sometimes, you know, oftentimes they have events on uh, YouTube um, that kind of point to potential guests. So there's a whole, and we're at a point now where people are, you know, we have uh, people who are being pitched to us by publicists and assistants and so forth. So we're in a pretty good place. Uh, I mean, a, a year or so ago, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis 
um, his office reached out to us and said that they'd love to do an event. So you like it when people are reaching out to you. Right. You kind of made it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So tell us about how you prepare for the interviews. You said you spend a lot of time at Barnes & Noble and you spend a lot of time reading books, I can confirm. (laughs) So uh, tell us a little bit about how you prepare. Well, you know, the one thing, as I mentioned, I had a column for 12 years uh, in which I would do profiles of, of people. And I learned a lot from that. And one of the things I learned is that oftentimes I was writing for a smaller publication, but um, um, you know, you I had to make it clear to the interviewee that it was worth his or her time to really invest in the interview. And so one of the things I learned early on in an interview is to, in a subtle way, signal that you've done your homework, that you're taking this interview seriously, um, and and so ask a non-obvious question. Sometimes it might come from their acknowledgement sections. Sometimes it might come from their notes. Um, might come from a book review. But just some sort of question early on in the interview that signals that you have done your homework. And I'll never forget, this goes back to my time in D.C. I had an interview with a gentleman by the name of Gareth Evans, who is Australia's had been Australia's foreign minister and was head of a very important think tank in D.C., so I arranged an interview with him and um, through his, his press person. And so the interview starts. And as soon as it starts, I could tell that, you know, he'd been sort of forced into it. He really didn't want to do it. Um, but I had prepared carefully. And I, I think, as I recall, I had read, he had written an essay on the, the books that were most influential to him. And so early in the interview where he wasn't really engaging, I found, and I found a little way to open, to take that opening. And said, you know, I noticed, you know, you've said this, you know, book was particularly, and the interview turned on a dime. You know, he immediately kind of turned. I could see him light up, and and I think what he was what he was responding to is someone who has done their homework. And the thing that I'm struck at, you know, we've interviewed some pretty high level people, and almost all of them, you know, I write a neat nail note of thanks, and they almost all come back and say, thank you for being so well prepared. And so, you know, I think, you know, in this busy world, a lot of people, you know, when they are interviewed by people in the news world, um, you know, you know, they're sort of producers and, you know, research associates who do the actually the work for the interviewer. They're not that well prepared. And so they kind of wing the interview, ask obvious questions. And, you know, the guest, you know, is sort of thinking, OK, fine, this is just a pro forma interview. So so I mean, the one thing I, I've found is to really prepare uh, to carefully. And, and I like also and I don't hope this is pulling on people's heartstrings. I like early on to have kind of a personal connection, you know, asking something about, you know, a parent or a teacher or a sibling or, a, you know, growing up experience or a college experience. And, and it just, I mean, you know, it's a way of just warming the interview up, making a human connection. And later on, you can start asking, you know, the tough policy-related questions. And I know several of my uh, colleagues have, have, you know, early on thought that I was taking too much time to get to the heart of the, the matter. But I think that, you know, we have the luxury, most of these interviews go from 45 minutes to an hour. So we have time. And I found that the best way to have a productive interview is first of all to introduce them as a human being first. And then you can get to the heavy policy stuff. And 
I think it's, it's probably easier for the audience to kind of absorb their policy message. And I think they're more likely to speak candidly and not feel like they're, you know, being threatened or feel like they're, you know, being set up for a tough, you know, tough exchange. And I guess I will make this general point. You know, I view these these as opportunities for us to hear the perspectives of really interesting, compelling people. We are not 60 Minutes. I'm not here to ambush someone or to embarrass them. We'll ask, you know, tough questions, but it's not designed for a, um, a sort of got you um, approach, which is what people are worried about oftentimes uh, when they do interviews. Yeah, and something that kind of sets us apart is that these are, in some cases, really high-profile people. We're reading their work as news consumers and people interested in policy, and we don't often get to see that side of them or learn about their background or who mentored them or made a big difference in their lives. So it's something unique to our series, too. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'll just even give you one example of, of, a, of, a, of a sort of the kind of the, the development of a, of a program. I was um, actually looking at a website. Uh, there was a think tank in Washington called the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And I was looking at their website, and they had a, they had a listing of events. And one of them was on cybersecurity, which is an issue I know almost nothing about. So I, I went on their events page, and they were having a conversation with a woman by the name of Nicole Perlroth, who was the cybersecurity reporter of the New York Times, who had just come out with a book. So I, and I, I watched the interview, and... It was interesting. She was compelling. I didn't understand all that much, but it was interesting. So, and she had just come out with a, a new book called uh, "This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends," which is a pretty interesting title. So I went out and bought the book, and uh, reached out to her through her publicist, and they said, "Yeah, we'll be glad to do the event." Um, of course, I had mentioned the other people we had interviewed, which helped make it look like to show it was a legitimate interview. Um, but this is, I mean, and it, the book is 500 pages. I mean, it's well-written, lots of stories, but this was, you know, 500 pages of a world that I didn't know really anything about. So, you know, it was, it took me, you know, three or four weeks to get through it. Um, and, and then I went back and I took notes, watched a couple of her other interviews to just see how she, how she interviewed, because that's another critical thing. You know, everyone speaks differently and responds differently. And, you know, I was trying to get the, the gauge the level of which she was very technical or whether she was more, you know, kind of broad, whether she was a storyteller or just a really fact-based person. Um, so I was able to, and watched a couple of interviews and got a good sense that she, you know, had an easy conversational style. She, she you know, her inclination was not to be super technical. So I kind of structured that the interview with that in mind and also kind of started out by asking her about, because um, she said in her book how she had gone from being a profiles reporter for Fortune magazine covering venture capitalists in Silicon Valley to being hired by the New York Times to do their cybersecurity and told the story about how she learned to get into the world of cybersecurity. So early in the interview, I'd asked her that, you know, she'd told us a couple stories in her book and I'd asked about it. And she really kind of warmed up and loved telling about how she kind of learned the beat of the cybersecurity world. Um, so in any case, that was a, you know, it was a fun, interesting pro, uh, conversation. I think we've had almost 2,000 or so people, uh, you know, visited on YouTube, which is good. I mean, we're not at Lady Gaga levels, but, uh, <laughs> But uh, but it was just I mean, it was a good, productive conversation. And I mean, she was, you know, just very generous in her comments saying she really enjoyed kind of the tone of the conversation and the level to which we were prepared for it. 
Right. And so you mentioned reading this 500 page book, something kind of different for you. And just out of my own curiosity, you know, how quickly can you read a book? Because you're reading a lot of books. I'm not a quick reader. I mean, I usually read about 15 or 20 pages an hour, um, you know, and then I and I usually mark up the books. So, I mean, it takes me a while. And then I usually go back with an interview, you know, like with this book with Nicole Perloff. I went back and I'm sure I spent you know, a full day taking notes from the book uh, because it was, you know, I read it and I absorbed it as reading it, but I needed to just kind of put it down in paper and notes. And then when I'm looking at the notes, I just get a more a better sense of just how to structure the interview. So, you know, I'm not complaining. It was interesting. It was, a, you know, we're a policy institute. And it was fun. But in terms of full preparation, I probably spent 45 or 50 hours in terms of reading the book and preparing the interview. Now, I've always read a lot, and so I just, in a case like this, my morning reading was Nicole Perlroth rather than, you know, other books that I might read. So right. it's, uh, and I, you know, and I choose authors um, whose books I would not mind reading, you know, is that it, it, maybe they're not always the ones that I would be reading, but at least ones like, okay, yeah, I'd be interested in, in what so-and-so is, is written. So that's, that's how I pursue that. Right. You mentioned that the YouTube video with Nicole Perlroth had gotten several thousand views on YouTube. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the series Reach. The podcast is relatively new. It's been downloaded over 1600 times. But as we've learned from this conversation, our virtual and digital offerings are more than that. Most of the interaction with our series actually happens on YouTube. Uh, so what can you tell us about our reach? How many people tune in live? How many people watch on YouTube? What are things kind of looking like there? Um, you know, it varies from guest to guest, of course. I mean, we, t we I mean, I like to have a hundred people watching, if all possible. Sometimes we've exceeded it. Sometimes we've been, but I, I think you know, it's, it's not unrealistic to get about a hundred people to sign up. Um, but then you know, with um, then we, we put it on YouTube, and we've had several people. Um, you know, we had um, Bill Burns, who was then president of the Carnegie Institute for International Peace, who's now director of the CIA. And so more people have looked at that. You know, we had Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who was then former mayor of South Bend. He was a research fellow at Notre Dame, had a great conversation with him. He becomes the, tr the transportation secretary. And so we've had some, you know, some good uh, viewership there. Had a terrific interview with um, Michelle Howard, who is the highest ranking African-American in the history of the Navy and just an amazingly compelling and interesting and fun person. And, you know, we've put that on YouTube and we've gotten three or four thousand looks. Um, Margaret McMillan, one of the best historians in the world, had a really interesting conversation about her book on war, um, which has gotten three or four thousand looks as well. So so all in all, we've had people from, I think it's 44 states and territories and 28 countries who have watched um, our show. And this is, I guess this kind of gets to the heart of it because as we start to contemplate what the world is going to look like when COVID finally eases or recedes or whatever it does, um, you know, we're trying to figure out how we balance these, these virtual series, which have expanded our reach, um, given us new audiences, you know, from a really around the world and balance those with in-person events, you know, because we like to do in-person events. The community in Carbondale loves to have in-person events. But the thing is, when you do an in-person event and we'll, you know, you know, pre-COVID, you might spend thousands and thousands of dollars getting them to Carbondale, you know, two days of, of you know, taking them around town and so forth. And um, have you know really an amazing speaker who 
puts together a great presentation to 75 people in a ballroom in Carbondale, Illinois. And so it's good for our community. We like to have these in-person events. It's important. It's a good way to showcase the campus and the Institute. But, but it's also occurred to me that you work very, very hard and spend lots of money um, for in-person events that have a relatively small physical audience. And I, I, I'll just to digress a moment, because I've talked to people from other college campuses and they have said, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, exactly what reasons to, to explain this, but across the country, it is really, really hard to draw people to events on college campuses. I mean, students are busy with other things. Um, and I even, uh, you know, I mentioned David Kennedy from Stanford. He was, he was saying that it's really, really hard for them to draw people to, to public events. So, so going forward, we're trying to figure out a way to balance virtual with with in-person events and there's there's no precise formula but it's something we're going to try to think through right and just to clarify that figure you gave on states and territories and countries those are the people who we know for sure have tuned in live on zoom obviously our reach on youtube and social media is much greater than that but you know you bring up some things that i wanted to talk about which are some of the pros and cons of virtual events you said at the beginning of this conversation that you were sort of lukewarm to the idea of virtual events at first and you've mentioned some pros and cons to virtual events but do you want to expand on that eddie and tell us what you've learned what surprised you about doing virtual events exclusively for two years now um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I have been surprised by the reach because, you know, we are based in southern Illinois, you know, a couple hours from St. Louis and, and, and also in some sense a physically remote place. And this, you know, we've had Zoom events with guests in Dublin, Ireland, Stockholm, Sweden, Melbourne, Australia, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, New York, Chicago. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these are people that probably we would not, we would have a lot of trouble inducing to come to Carbondale. They have busy lives and it would be a, you know, so we have access to people that we would never really have access to, certainly on a steady basis. Um, and then we have viewership from literally around the world. So that expands our reach and that's good. Um, but we also, I mean, as we know, as we're, you know, two and a half years into COVID, uh, people are sort of tired of Zoom. I mean, they don't love living on Zoom. And I know there's, you know, now that we're pulling out of it, I think, you know, um, we're, maybe we're settling into a little bit more of an equilibrium. Um, and so, you know, my, my view has been to kind of, you know, shock and awe and just have as many good events as we could. We've had almost 70 in two years, and it's been hard work for all of us. Um, I think it's substantially expanded our reach. Um, I think people have, know about the Institute who had never heard of it before, had several people say they had never even heard of Southern Illinois University before. So that um, is, I think that's an important, uh, an important development. Um, um, you know, limitations, um, you know, people are a little bit zoomed out. Um, and then also, and I say this humorously, I mean, the world of Zoom is not easily uh, controllable. And we've had everything from doorbells ringing to a lawnmower. The, the, the mowing crew seems to park outside my office when we have, you know, major events. I say that somewhat facetiously, but um, so the physical environment, you know, for Zoom interviews can be a little bit challenging. Um, but still, you know, people have, we're all human beings and we've had Zoom events where the family dog walks in or a cat or, 
you know, the lawnmower or the spouse who happens to be walking through the room, that sort of thing. So, so I mean, on balance, I think this has been an important tool. I think it's given us a reach we haven't had before. I think it's been um, an important way to to brand the Institute as a serious player in the public policy world. Um, but you also lose the human touch of seeing people at receptions and at events and, and having private conversations. And, you know, I feel to some extent that, you know, you know, we all kind of hunger for in-person events. Um, so we're going to work hard to figure out a good balance. Tell us about any conversations that stand out as favorites. I know you might not want to say that one was better than another, but if there was a highlight or something really exciting that happened in one in particular. Yeah, I mean, a couple, like Mary Robinson from Ireland. I mean, she's probably on the short list of most respected global leaders. I mean, she is literally an iconic person, you know, was the first woman president of Ireland, went on to a senior job at the UN, uh, has been very active in climate change issues. I mean, this is someone who's a major, major player on the global stage. And when, you know, I sent a note to her through her foundation when they came back and said, we'd be glad to do it. I mean, I was really, really happy. You know, Leon Panetta, you know, an iconic American who's been, you know, White House chief of staff, um, White House budget director, director of the Department of Defense, CIA director. I mean, just this amazingly uh, iconic person who also knew Paul Simon and had a personal connection with him and could tell a story or two about him. I mean, that was a highlight. Uh, I mentioned uh, uh, Admiral Howard, who was one of these pioneers in American life, you know, the first woman, one in one of the first class of women to enter the Naval Academy, just a really charismatic and an impressive person. Uh, Ruth Simmons, who is the first, was the first African-American to be president of Ivy League school, and then came out of retirement to become a president at a historically black college in Texas. Just a compelling, uh, impressive story. Um, Adam Schiff, we recently had a conversation with him and, uh, you know, he's on TV a lot. So people are familiar with him, but, you know, I, I, I he, he had come out with a memoir, so I'd read it carefully and, you know, and I asked him, I mean, he mentioned in his memoir that he had once aspired to be a screenwriter. So I was able to ask him some questions about screenwriting and what his aspirations were in his book. He tells some really funny and kind of heartwarming stories about his father, a 94 year old and, uh, uh, Florida, who's a fierce uh, defender of his son, including getting into some verbal altercations at his club because uh, someone was critical of, of his son. So Adam Schiff was a, a terrific interview. Uh, Bill Burns, who was now head of the CIA, head of a think tank at the time we spoke to him, one of the top diplomats of the last half century. Really interesting, compelling, impressive person. So Mayor Pete Buttigieg, also, you know, a really interesting story who, who knows, maybe running for president in a couple of years. So um, lots of really interesting conversations. Something that I really appreciate about our series is that there are people who I had never heard of before that you'll have on. And I'm sure that's the case for our audience, too. Is there anyone like that who stands out to you, someone you hadn't really been familiar with before, but you learned about them through the series and now? Well, one who just completely jumps out is a woman by the name of Elizabeth Hinton, who is a professor at Yale and has written a couple really compelling books about... Um, about the United States, you know, in terms of civil rights, uh, racial tensions, criminal justice issues, 
wrote this book just in the last year or so called America on Fire, which I had heard about. And she was remarkably interesting and compelling and dynamic, so much so that we're actually going to have her on campus in a couple months to give one of our major lectures. Um, so she was someone who I, you know, someone had recommended her. I was initially, you know, I Googled her. I'm thinking, May, maybe that'll be interesting. And she was just, uh, she was tremendous. Um, we had a gentleman by the name of Tom Zollner, who is a, writes for the Los Angeles uh, Review of Books. And uh, I saw a, a review of a book that he had written called National Road, which was a, a series of travel essays. And he was just remarkably interesting and, uh, and actually got a really nice note from one of our uh, listeners who said, you know, this is someone I never would heard of. I somewhat impulsively decided to watch the show, uh, the show I call it. Mm -hmm. she, said, she said, I loved it. I went out and got his book. You know, I'd love to, you know, do you have his address so I can send him a note, you know, and, and several people have said that these were because we like, you know, big, you know, top notch people, but we also like interesting voices, people that maybe not everyone has heard of um, and uh, just introduce those kinds of people to, um, to, uh, to our audience. Uh, we, you know, we had a wonderful conversation a few weeks ago with Melinda Hennenberger who is known in the journalism world. She'd worked at the Post, Washington Post and New York Times, but she, she had moved to the Kansas City Star and had done some really remarkable editorial uh, writing and investigative reporting. And so we had her, and then a week later, she was awarded a Pulitzer Prize for, um, for journalism, for explanatory journalism. So those are some people who are really, you know, delights to talk to and uh, um, I think introduce people to to voices they had not heard before. Certainly. So you mentioned that uh, we're planning to bring Elizabeth Hinton to campus. So that's a perfect segue to talk about the future a little bit. Um, as we said, we've been doing virtual now for more than two years. Um, sounds like we're going to be pivoting to some more in-person. So what does that mean for virtual events for this podcast? You know, what can people expect going forward? Well, I will still keep this up because I do think that it has given us a a reach that we have not had before. And, you know, rather, you know, we've had, we've done almost 70 in two years. I think we are going to scale it back to maybe have one or two a month. Um, so there will be, you know, maybe not quite as many, but I think we are going to keep this up because uh, I feel like it has really opened um, kind of a new avenue for the Institute. And again, you know, if you're a think tank based in Chicago or Boston or New York or DC, um, that's one thing. We're not there. And, you know, Paul Simon chose to locate at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. It was an intentional decision. And, and so, um, I, you know, everyone respects that and is working from that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult and challenging to get to Carbondale. It takes work. And so, the truth is, you know, we, you know, if we have three or four in-person major events a year, that probably is what we should be doing. Um, we also have smaller, called peace and politics events, which are more informal, tend to be with state officials. Um, which let, was, let me digress just for one minute to say that in this series, that while we've had national and international figures, we've also had a fairly substantial component of Illinois. This is where we're based. But we've had the president of the Illinois Senate, the lieutenant governor, the comptroller, the gentleman who, at the time, he was just a member of the Illinois House. He's now speaker of the House. 
Uh, we had the Senate Majority Leader, the House Republican Leader. So we've had, you know, we try to blend national and international perspectives with Illinois perspectives because that's also where people are interested in from here. So, so how it actually shapes out, I don't know exactly. I mean, I envision, you know, one or two virtual events a month to keep it going because I think it's been an important avenue for us. Um, and then we will also, you know, have some in-person events. Um, and also, you know, focusing on some research projects, which is also part of our mission. So, so we still are sorting it out. I don't know that there's a magic formula. Um, you know, I think we have um, kind of fallen into a, a medium that works for us and, you know, is it advantageous for us? So I think we're going to keep it going. Definitely. So you always wrap up your interviews by asking your guests how they like to relax. So I'll ask you the same. Uh, tell us how you like to relax when you're not working. Well, you know, I, I like to uh, read for fun. I also run. I like to walk. Uh, my wife and I like to travel. We uh, took a great trip last summer to uh, South Dakota, which we'd never been to. That was on our bucket list. This summer, we're going to Seattle. I've never been to Seattle. Um, Hoping to go in a year or two to Europe for a, a, a trip that in, will include uh, some lectures, but also some fun. So, so I like that. You know, my, my family is largely uh, located in uh, my brothers and sisters and their kids in the uh, Milwaukee area. So I haven't seen them for a while, so I look forward to seeing them again. I like sports. I watch. My wife teases me. She says, I'm the only person she's met who, who will go from... Uh, C-SPAN to ESPN without inter inter intermediate steps, you know, so... Uh, you probably and, have good company in that. Okay, yeah, a few <laughs> others. And then also, you know, of course, Netflix. We become huge Netflix fans. Saw Ted Lasso. Uh, we're watching The Morning Show now. Uh, we're also watching Borgen, uh, which is about a, a political figure in, um, in Denmark, a woman, the first woman prime minister who's who becomes foreign minister later on. So those are some of the things I like I like to do. I hear some politics uh, sneaking into your it fun does. time. It does. <laughs> well, John, thank you so much for sitting down with me and uh, doing this and giving our audience a little insight into your work and our work and the series. Um, so thank you so much. And Ellie, I want to also thank you for all the, the work you do to make sure that this podcast works and this the series works because you're behind the scenes making sure that the logistics work and that oftentimes is daunting and challenging and uh, we've we've pulled it off and I think it's worked out well for us. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this special episode of Simon Cast. We're going to take the next couple of weeks off, but we'll be back with uh, the president and CEO of the Better Government Association in July. SimonCast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify, and more. Subscribe to see new episodes as soon as they're posted, and please tell your friends. We'll be back in a few weeks.